Hi, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Today, my conversation with Amy Edelstein. Amy is the is an author. She is a public speaker. She is an educator. She's the founder of an organization called Inner Strength Foundation. There'll be links below to that. Um, Amy really interested me because, I mean, as you know, I've got an interest in um, an interest in spirituality. I think I've got uh, certain skepticisms about spirituality, but also I'm drawn to it. Um, I'm just in a place of learning myself. So um, Amy is a person who teaches, um, I guess, secular practices, which um, she has kind of gleaned from a long career of studying, experiencing, and understanding various um, various types of, of spiritual practice and um, and secular practice and that kind of thing. So she's kind of taken a long career and she's developed a system for uh, teens from all kinds of different backgrounds to uh, to apply the lessons she's learned to their own inner strength, which I think it's great. Um, she's doing really important work. So go check out Inner Strength Foundation, see if there's a way you can get involved or donate. Um, and I just really loved talking to Amy. She had she has a, a a passion and a warmth that comes through, but also a seriousness that comes through and a real um, a real conviction. So it's it's always uh, a stimulating and educating experience just speaking to someone like that. So I hope you enjoy the conversation. Like and subscribe if you want more of these kinds of conversations. Uh, thank you for watching. Here's my conversation with Amy Edelstein. Amy Edelstein, welcome to Morning Talk Show. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. It's uh, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, I, I, your your programs that you do with teens and your um, inner strength and that kind of thing um, are, are are right in line with things that I'm I'm very curious to know uh, more about. So um, how how do you describe yourself when people? Um, when you're, when you're meeting new people, how do you, how do you describe what you do or is that too broad? That's a good question. Uh, there are of course many ways to answer that. And really what I'm trying to do is take the best of my experience of 40 years of in-depth contemplative practice and teaching around the world to release the irrepressible creativity of everyone I meet. So mm. right now my program, the nonprofit that I started, Inner Strength, is working in the high schools, um, bringing tools of contextual systems thinking and meditation to youth and also to their teachers. But I've worked in many different um, sectors and populations. My, my real mission is to really allow people to recognize the essential positivity of life because there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of hurt. It's a harsh world we're living in. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of good reason to fear. Mm. So it's not a denial of that, but I do feel that where we're going to find the resources to find creative solutions and to individually and culturally heal from a lot of the harshness that mm. human beings have perpetrated on each other is from that irrepressible goodness, that essential human love of life. So that's what I speak to and teach to uh, in all of the programs that I work with. Awesome. Um, so it, it sounds almost like uh, creativity and love of life are kind of synonymous almost like when you describe your programs would you say that's like would, would you say that human beings when um when they get out of a place of fear or when they're able to at least um have reprieve from the fear are that human beings are naturally creative there's a there's a creativity that i think is woven in the fabric of life i mean if you look around us look at the extraordinary diversity in the natural world. Look at the mm. extraordinary diversity of human creation from yeah. music to art, to architecture, to yeah. urban planning. To, so, so there is that love of bringing into being 
And yet, if you talk to almost anyone, they can find a moment in their life when they were most deeply happy, which mm. is when they didn't, felt like they didn't need to do anything. Right. And whether it was they were four years old and they walked out and, and the sun was just so extraordinarily beautiful that their heart mm. just opened, they never forgot it. Yeah. Or other uh, efforts that come out of um, meditation or contemplation or reading or creation. But people, when they think about those moments where they're most happy, they feel that sense of wholeness and fullness and mm. goodness. That's just if we let go of a lot of uh, striving and, and fear and and projection and limited beliefs that keep us contained, mm -hmm. um, we find that that's uh, a human resting place. Um, that's beautiful. Um, something that came to mind as you were saying that is um, the, the almost like the, based on kind of a modern uh, uh, way of looking at things, there's almost a mismatch between like, I, I love the idea uh, when you say there's a natural creativity in, in human beings um, and you compare that to the natural world. I think that's beautiful because I do think we, we lose a, we lose a, that feeling that we're part of the same movement that makes the plants grow, you know, and that, that makes uh, the, the processes of nature happen. We get kind of divorced from that process. And so on the one hand, it's inspiring to hear that we're part of that and that we, uh, we can create things like city, civic planning or, you know, architecture and those kinds of things that also grow. Um, on the other hand, you're saying, I mean, not that I'm not saying you're making a contradiction. I'm just noticing um, the uniqueness of the message in that um, when you experience this, this connection and this kind of wholeness, it's accompanied by a, a restful spirit. And, and where I, where I think that it sounds like there's some, tension between that and maybe a modernist or a modern day um, viewpoint is that the modern day says, yes, you're creative, you're, you know, and you, and your creativity can and should be monetized through effort. Um, you know what I mean? So that the response to the response to the same thing, like, you know, if you're getting a pep talk uh, from a, um, a sort of purely business standpoint, the response to that same feeling of like, you're creative. So work as hard as you can, as soon as you, you know, as, as soon as you can, like, is that attention that you, is that attention that you run into in your practice? Like um, getting people to kind of take a space where it doesn't immediately become an, an, a great effort, but that they can rest. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. The, the trick is, is it, it's, it's, it's where are we drawing our ultimate um, sense of fulfillment and meaning from. So it's not that effort in and of itself is bad. Of course, yeah. Um, we all do and we get great joy out of doing. But when that effort is um, a substitute for the fullness of heart, you have incredibly talented and successful role models and culture who are extremely unhappy. I mean, look how many tragic suicides we've seen just in mm -hmm. the last five years of very famous people who are so creative, they do so much. Oftentimes they're very generous. You would never think that they were deeply unfulfilled. Right. So if we're wanting to create a culture where the best of our creative nature comes forward, we want that creativity to be coming from a, a con an inner context or a wellspring mm. of goodness and fulfillment aside from external things that we do. Right. And then you feel like then there's like room for compassion. There's room for self-compassion. There's room for pacing. There's room for uh, incredible striving. Well, you know, some things are worth fighting for and need mm -hmm. to be fought for. Right. But where are we 
doing that from and where are we drawing our source of sustenance from? Mm. Um, yeah, and I, I, but when in what I was saying, I certainly didn't mean to imply that effort in itself was bad. I have just noticed a tendency in myself through probably conditioning to um, immediately go to the effort place. Um, and even in various like uh, practices that I've tried to do um, to find inner peace, uh, there does become an effort, like I remember once I, I committed to a morning uh, prayer thing. Uh, personally, I thought this would be great. I can start my day with that. And I intentionally chose a time of day that I knew that I would be extremely sleepy uh, because I felt that something about this Herculean effort of, uh, of getting up and kind of meditating silently beside my bed, you know, I mean, was that the effort of that was what was going to prove to myself or to the universe that um, I was on a good path or that I, you know, I was earning it or something. And so that's, I don't know, like, did you experience that with your, with your teens at all that you work with, like things like that, where the, the, the effort is actually getting in the way of, uh, of this piece? Um, well, I have a couple answers to that. I mean, sometimes we go through periods of our life where we make, kind of heroic effort and we pushed through personal barriers. So I've done that. I, um, there was a period where I lived in India in my early twenties and mm -hmm. I used to get up at four in the morning and I used to bathe in ice cold, uh, mountain water Ooh. and, and I would meditate for a few hours and I would do it every day. And mm. sometimes it was cold. Yeah. Wow. Sometimes it was hot. So, so that kind of, and at different points of my life, I've done many years of, of deep practice, you know, daily practice for hours or long retreats. And you go beyond limitation when you do that because you feel tired. You don't want to do it. You don't see what the purpose is. You, mm. You're fed up, you know, you think you're a loser anyway, so why bother to do this? Right. Um, so consistency and pushing through that teaches a lot about the mind, the nature of the mind, the nature of what are our habitual tendencies? Do we always think that we're further along than we are? Do we always think that we're less far along? Do we um, continually undermine our efforts? Do we doubt? Do we have mm -hmm. a lot of self-doubt? Do we doubt our commitment or our decisions so that we're constantly ruminating. I mean, William James was famous at that. He could never commit to anything. <laughs> so he, he could never commit to a course of study. He could never commit to a different, you know, a, a different kind of inner con contemplative practice. He was constantly doubting himself no matter mm. what he did. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So all kinds of great historical figures go through that. At the same time, the teens that I work with are so deeply stressed. Um, they're worried, you know, everything from grades to financial aid to climate change to systemic racism to deportation. I mean, they're really, they have some really major issues on their mind. And I just don't feel that what they need right now is the equivalent of a Zen monast monastic right. discipline in the middle of high school. What they right. need is they need to be allowed to be kids. They need to be allowed to be happy, to let go, to goof around, to have fun, to fall mm. in love, to do those normal things that teens do mm. um, in, in a climate that is just really rough. Yeah. I've got young children and uh, when I see them clearly experiencing that kind of freedom that childhood gives you, I'm, I'm pre, I'm pre sad or I'm, I'm pre anxious <laughs> about the time when that, uh, you know, when that goes away or when you see them starting to experience anxiety, it's like, it's a, it's a, it's a hard world. And, um, and I think the internet and and social media has brought a lot of has has taken the bubble away sooner 
the childhood bubble away. Uh, do you do you talk about social media in your in your course? We do. It's a it's a very big source of stress, hmm. and digital addiction is also on the rise. Mm-hmm. I mean, I encourage all parents to keep their, actually the World Health Organization said that it's best to keep your children, um, even as old as five, away from digital devices because mm. of the impact on emotions and brain and, and mm-hmm. those um, craving receptors that right. all the movements and bells hit. Um, when I walk around the city and I see toddlers, you know, with their parents' phones in their hands. And then when the parent tries to take the phone away, they scream, you know? Yeah. But it's a, it's a level of intensity that you can feel that early addiction settling Mm. in, you know, it's, Mm. it's, um, so you really, you know, for all the listeners, you really do want to be careful around your digital devices and young children. It's not necessary. Yeah. Um, and the passive, the passive, what pacifies the kids in the short term will have long-term behavioral effects, most right. likely. Yeah, um, yeah. But it's I, I'm sympathetic. We we try and have a, a very limited screen time with our kids, but uh, man, there are times where it's so easy, you know, to stick them in front of that. But then when you get um, teens, uh, I feel like you. I mean. I'm interested in your in your techniques on this because I'm I'm guessing there's no option of no of no device, and there's no option of no social media, um, and so um, do you give them kind of some some guidelines or some thoughts on how to limit themselves or 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 is it most is it is it the same kind of inner strength and the same kind of mindfulness that you just tell them to apply that to social media? We do a lot of compassion building. And so if you're reinforcing that kind of kindness towards people you don't like or who said something bad to you, you can help teens learn how to dial back mm. their reactivity, that, that you know, hurt or humiliation that wants to retaliate and that escalates. And on mm-hmm. once it escalates digitally, it can spread. So yeah, it, it it's we don't we don't try to limit teens we talk about um staying away from their screens at least an hour before bed because the light in the screens affects right the brain waves and then they can't settle down and they don't get a yeah. good night's sleep and right. we give them very pragmatic tools hmm. to and we teach them about the effect of those kinds of electronics and the light on the brain and we teach them about dopamine receptors and what's going on so that Mm. they understand that this is not a particular judgment of them individually or personally and we also let them know that um there are a few great articles that came out over the last two years about silicon valley developers who are working at particular app companies who are not giving their young children devices. And they, now that they're having kids because they're now in their thirties instead of in their early twenties, they're recognizing that they have been building in addiction triggers into Mm. the, you know, online media and games for profit. And now their kids are walking into that and they don't want their kids having that effect. So they're discussing if we could build these to be addictive, can we build these to be non-addictive and how would we do that? So there's a, a, you know, a glimmer of, of conscience around long-term effects. But in general, when you teach teens that that's what's happening, that there's a profit motive that is manipulating their experience then they get angry. You know, then it's yeah. like, nobody can mess with me. Yeah. Nobody can control me. Right. I'm going to show them. And that I found um, activates that teen sense of independence, of yeah. wanting to be their own person, yeah. of not wanting somebody to fool them, um, not wanting to be used. And that is quite an effective deterrent. Yeah, that's beautiful. I, I, never, I never thought of that, you know, like... On a personal level with social media, uh, I have, 
I've often felt like it holds up a, a mirror to me um, about, about in, a, in a way, about parts of myself that uh, I, sometimes are, are healthy things and sometimes are not healthy things. Like, uh, but they're, they are a part of me and it shines, a, it shines a light on me. So I've put kind of, you know, sometimes pressure on myself that I should be better than this. I should be bigger than this, you know, but it is, it is good to know that it's, it's reassuring to know that there's something kind of built into it that, um, you know, it's not just my weakness that makes me scroll through angry tweets. You know, that's something like I just got into Twitter because of this podcast and Twitter will show me a tweet that it knows will make me angry. I, I know that there's some algorithm or something, not that there's a conscious mind, but it'll show me something that is not something from someone I follow, but that I'll instantly know that all of the responses are going to be really angry. And I'll scroll through the angry responses and just soak up. It's happened a couple of times. I'll just soak up the, the negativity. And, and, so, and that's almost entirely from adults to adults. You know, um, so uh, anyway, I'm just, I'm just riffing on this. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm learning from you. It's good. It's good to think of it that way. Right. And I think that as we started in the beginning, we always want to be mindful about our own human life. What are we aspiring to demonstrate? What are we aspiring to experience? not just in a meditation practice or other kinds of reflective contemplative practices, but, you know, in all of those temptations and challenges. Mm. So, you know, 2000 years ago, the temptations and challenges were different. Mm. Um, and, and we can't, human nature is a struggle between our baser instincts and our better instincts. Mm. And when we're surrounded by a climate where our better instincts are being nurtured, it's much easier to lead with them. Yeah. Now, when we're surrounded by a climate that um, feeds off of our baser instincts, mm. and often there's a profit motive behind it um, that feeds on division and prejudice mm -hmm. and animosity, as you were describing, Mm. Um, we have to remember that that's what a conscious life is about, is about saying, oh, I'm being manipulated. Right. I actually don't want to go there. I'm not going to feel better. I'm not going to learn anything. I'm not going to contribute anything. I'm going to come out of this 23 minutes later going, why did I do that? Yeah. Uh, you write the you you write out the whole angry response to the Facebook wall, and then I've done this anyway. And then sat there with my finger on the post button, and and then not done it. And oh my goodness, it feels so good not to contribute to that. Right. So yeah, no, that's that's really interesting. And you talk about a profit motive. Um, I I I often extend that to um, you know non. I don't know if, if by profit motive you you mean like uh, money profit or if power and status could also, could also yeah. be included in that. But yeah, so I guess there's a certain amount of um, encouraging teens or people in general to, to pass up perceived opportunities for money, status, and power um, in order to, like for the sake of their own, for the sake of their own um, well-being and then and then also that um, that does spiral out into that does go out into the world, um, you know, and, and affect other people's well-being as well. It's probably difficult at times because we think if I say something, if I say something on social media and put someone in their place or or get my viewpoint out there, that's active and that's doing something. And if I don't. I'm not doing anything to make things better. You know what I mean? Like there's that feeling that, that, that maybe you can see that people do think it's important to get their view out there. Um, and they kind of always equate their view with what makes them angry rather than their viewpoint being something that makes them 
joyous or, or makes them feel centered? This isn't really a question. I'm just um, thinking. Well, I think that, that at the, one of the things that you're bringing out there is what counts as a positive contribution to the world. Mm, yeah. And we forget that who we are, the quality of our humanity is what's going to impact so many people in a real way. Mm. And, you know, some people are philosophers and their medium is communication. You know, musicians have had such a huge influence mm -hmm. over us. Um, but for ordinary people like us who we work in fairly limited areas, we uh, work with people who know us, who mm. talk to us, who see us. If we have that uh, groundedness and centeredness, if we're reliable as human beings on a heart level, you know, that we're not going to fly off the handle and mm. berate somebody who was supposed to be our friend and cut them down in front of other people, right. where we're just going to, or if we have a bad day, we're not going to dwell in it and, and, you know, paint everyone around us with our mm. negativity, um, that means something to people. And it mm -hmm. shows them our, that our better human nature is possible to live from mm. in this day and age. And that's, an, that's so important because most of us can't dismantle the structures of systemic institutionalized racism. Most of us don't have the power and authority to make significant reduction in our carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. Some people do, and some people listening to your podcast may have that capability in manufacturing or in um, you know, science and engineering. So please do so. <laughs> Use your intelligence for good. But for those of us who don't, being an expression of the world that we want to live in, that quality of generosity of spirit, of wisdom, of depth, of lightness of being, of joy and love that's authentic is so needed. I mean, mm -hmm. I can't think of anything that, that is immediately accessible and in such short supply in most people's lives. So it's, it's critical. And, and mm. so instead of seeing that I'm not doing anything, if I don't put my view out and, you know, yeah. kind of combat in, in the turf wars out there, um, recognize the value mm -hmm. of really being a kind person. Yeah. And what, what comes to mind as you're saying this is that for the people, you know, who, who don't have a, um, a, a platform or a, a, a position to make changes that will be noticeable to large numbers of people in things like carbon emission and racism um, is that the opportunity that's afforded us is to plant a garden in where you live that can actually flower, but it, you know, and can, can grow. And it's, it's not a short there's no shortcut to it, you know? So if you have a platform to speak to millions and you can get people to change their behavior and, and combat climate change or whatever, um, that's amazing. Um, but it, you know, I, I, I'm sure that those people who have the ability, uh, many of them are also in their lives, hopefully planting seeds just like you or I would be able to do. And, I'm kind of reminded of uh, uh, actually a, a biblical parable of the the casting of the seeds uh, where some of them land in the rocky places and some of them land on fertile soil. And, um, and it, it feels to me, and, and obviously the seeds planted on fertile soil are the ones that grow. And it makes me feel based on what you're saying and what we're, what we're talking about that social media is, is, is very often. Yeah. I was going to say it's a place, it's, it's a rocky ground where those seeds don't, the seeds don't necessarily grow. Forgive me. I, I, I'm a verbal processor. So you're, I, I'm, I'm, I'm working through what, what we're saying here. And, and even as I'm saying this, I'm kind of realizing that the things we're tossing out sometimes on social media, the negative things aren't seeds. <laughs> hmm. 
so uh, that was my, my first thing was like, oh, it's social media. My first thought was that social media is, is the rocky ground and we're casting our seeds and they're not growing. But I think often it's somehow it's not even, it's not even seeds of, of love and seeds of wholeness and contentment that we're even casting. So, I mean, it could be that if we all went tomorrow and cast the right seeds on social media, like all of us, that would be a garden as well because it's a place that we it's a place that we live is that right yeah yeah and certainly media of all kinds can be used to connect um look at sesame street they broke barriers on aids they broke barriers on mental illness they have they've broken barriers on discrimination they have a new mm. um they have a new segment of their show that's helping uh, children in refugee camps around the world. Oh, wow. I mean, I it's so, so the, the, and I, uh, he's come back because of the couple movies on his life, but I actually grew up in Mr. Rogers neighborhood. Uh, we beautiful. used to run into him in the barbershop and he has oh, two literally. sons who were literally, he, he lived six blocks from my grade school. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. So I actually literally grew up. Yes, I literally grew up in his neighborhood. Whoa! Uh, and look how look how it makes you feel just thinking about him. Oh, so good. Exactly. Yeah. No, I can't. I can't even watch that stupid movie about him. Like I just cry instantly, and I'm not a crier, but the it's so real. He's so real. Like. And he chose to work with children so that there, there couldn't be falseness in him when he looked in their eyes because they, you know, their reactions to him in that movie and, and, and just in life were so real that you knew he had something. Right. You know, he was contributing by his presence, by his, even non-verbally. Yeah. Yeah. He was deeply kind. And he actually, he was going to go into the priesthood. Mm. So he I've had a he, yeah he had a calling and he ended up going into the broadcast world, mm-hmm. but he, he he wanted to live and be in a very authentic way um, with children, and he was able to again he dealt with with so many difficult issues, he dealt with death. He mm-hmm. dealt with suicide. He racism. dealt with racism. Mm-hmm. And I remember the, there was an episode, um, one of the movies, the documentary about him showed the clip from this episode, where um, there was an African-American um, cast member and him, and they had, it was summertime, and they had one of those little kids' pools, and it showed them very carefully taking off their shoes, taking off their socks, you know, doing things in a way that a three-year-old can understand and they put their feet in the water together. Mm-hmm. That was intentional to cut through so much strife and struggle and racism. And that, that image I know affected many young kids because it affected me. And mm-hmm. when I remember it, I remember it from seeing it as a child, not from reliving it as an adult. And oh, nice. so when you see that his own humanity his own sense of kindness his own belief in the goodness of people helped him find a language that wasn't being used at the time in children's Mm. television and Mm -hmm. and that really helped an entire generation and multiple generations grow up yeah it's beautiful and uh so i that's a, a powerful example of of how um, media can, yeah, like these 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 larger things, media and social media and all can be can be a place of of transformation. And and I've noticed that a little bit in my own um, life because uh, after Donald Trump was elected, uh, I was about this close to closing my Facebook account uh, because I mean we all felt betrayed. I think by by social media, or I guess 
those who did not want Trump to be elected uh, felt, I don't want to be political, but uh, felt that a bit betrayed by social media because we'd seen that we'd seen the bubble. We'd like, we'd been in a sounding or a, what do you call that? We, we'd been inside a, um, a, an echo chamber, I guess that's the word. And, mm-hmm. and thought there was no chance of this happening. But then uh, I guess I chose to start to be vulnerable on my Facebook wall. And it's really awkward sometimes because um, I'll put something vulnerable. I'll throw something out like the other day. Uh, well, I, 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 I don't want to get specific, but I, I talked about um, what people's cognitive goals were for 2020 and I shared mine. And I noticed that uh, I, got, I got people um, recommending therapies for me, uh, which it, it, it was, which they did out of love. And I actually don't, I'm not even angry about it at now, but at the moment I was like, I didn't say this to, I didn't say this to get your advice. I wanted to hear what you're going to do, you know? And, and I kind of got, I kind of got annoyed. And then I realized, no, there's like a, there's a vulnerability that I need to, like, I, I, there's a, a, you have to break through a barrier of kind of being real on social media that is mm. difficult to, to do. But once I did it and I've gotten more used to it, the algorithm started to kind of work in my favor where I noticed that it was, seemed to be showing my posts to the people who would comment, had commented on my posts. And then this little community actually developed up of people who didn't know each other who would come in and, and be vulnerable on, on my Facebook wall. So um, I, I guess that's just a personal story based on what we're talking about that illustrates it. Right. But I think the point is, is that um, people want to connect and, you know, we want to meet each other and, um, you know, we want to break bread together. And, Sometimes working at the level of ideas and beliefs is, can't melt the differences, but finding common ground, you know, maybe everybody loves the silence or, you know, the people you're talking with, everybody loves to be outside in the beautiful place or people like art or people like music or people like people love their children or their grandchildren. And Mm. you can remember the old sting song or the Russians love their children too. Mm. And, you know, connecting, you know, I think that the human family is a social, we're social creatures and our, whether it's psychological work or uh, contemplative work or other forms of personal transformation or philosophical endeavor, it really is to enable us to expand our context mm. so that when we, when we stretch the context in which we're holding mm. the, the issues of our times, we start to gain a, a, a different perspective. We're, we're mm. looking at the human struggles from a different vantage point. And it's a little bit like looking at the earth, you know, the way the astronauts did from the moon. And of course there's all, you know, there are storms and floods and problems and grief and loss and all kinds of things. But from out that far away, you see a beautiful wholeness. Mm-hmm. And then it opens that sense of care, that sense of gentleness, that sense of oneness, that sense of wanting to embrace everything mm-hmm. and find a way for everyone to mm-hmm. you know, be fulfilled and, and in a safe place. Mm-hmm. So that, that kind of, um, you know, in, in all of the great wisdom traditions and the great philosophers, they were looking for those ways of thinking and seeing and being in the world that enable that context to open up. So when Mm. our our view opens up, all of the noise dies down. And when we find ourselves, you know, really getting too wound up, whether it's watching too much news, which is now a 24 hour cycle instead of 
the seven o'clock evening news right. once a day and where everyone's yelling and you know it's it's just a constant 10 decibel level it's good to find things to walk away to step away to find things that expand your own perspective mm. and whether that's being in nature whether that's reading your favorite author whether that's listening to your favorite piece of music or inviting friends over and making a beautiful meal together just to be together without mm. anything um fancy or overdone but just that quality of of just simply being together without anything you need to do mm. um you realize that we have tools in our hands to let our perspective open up and in that let ourselves drop to that deeper access of mm. wisdom and compassion and heartfulness for ourselves and for other people mm. that's really uh, you know it's incumbent upon us as adults in this day and age to do that mm. and not to expect it to come from the outside to be role models for the next generation of three-year-olds or 16-year-olds and to be able to feel our own sense of, of fulfillment because when we're out of control, we feel at a lack. We feel not well and we want, we can turn that around by exercising that, um, that self agency mm. over the, how we choose to live our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I love the kind of personalness of what you're saying, the experiential kind of non-formulaic nature of, of kind of following, following your internal cues kind of towards this, um, this piece and this uh, inner strength that gives you the, the right um, starting point from which to, to go out into the world. And I'm noticing a, a kind of a beautiful um, uh, lack of focus on the idea of belief um, because just on a personal level, I, I've, I have come from a place where establishing what you believe is the first thing to do. And there's a, a feeling, uh, I don't know if it's a faith or just something that's, that's, that's told to, to, to you that um, if you get your beliefs right at the core, you get them specific, you know them fully, um, then the, the wholeness will, will arise from that. But what I'm hearing from you is, is that ideas are actually a way to open up wider. I, I've, I, you know, I've, I've occasionally fallen prey to ideas being a way to hone in like a scalpel on what is right or, you know, um, what will, what will work, um, for me and, and that kind of thing. Um, so this isn't a question, but I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm liking that, um, that it seems like you begin with connection um, with others. You begin with connection with yourself and, and well, actually I don't even know where beliefs come in that, in the continuum. Like what, what would you, I'm assuming with your teens, you're not laying out a system of beliefs for them. You're laying out some practices or what do you, what, how would you characterize that? I'll shut up. Well, okay. There are a couple different ways to answer that. The thing that I've seen, so I read a lot and I read a lot of different philosophers and teachers and role models. And when I've always liked to meet people, whoever I can up close and personal, um, I want to see who they are. I've had the privilege and blessing of meeting Nelson Mandela three times, um, interviewing and spending the Dalai Lama. Um, Jane wow. Goodall, Nobel Laureate Rigoberto Manchu Tomb, and I've seen Robert Mugabe, the, the dictator, speak. And wow. so I have had, um, I always like to meet people because 
I want to see who they are. And I love reading biographies. So I love the transcendentalists, the American transcendentalists, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Margaret Fuller and mm. uh, Henry, Henry David Thoreau, you know, just getting to know them and their human frailties and what they were like. And then you can see how the philosophies or Alfred North Whitehead is one of my favorite evolutionary mm-hmm. thinkers or uh, Theo Desjardins is another one of my favorite evolutionary thinkers. Um, their vision and philosophy came out of their life experience. So when you understand that, you understand the viewpoint and the viewpoint has often has merits and, and right. limitations, but it arose from a particular set of eyes in a particular set of circumstances. Mm. And it's very important for us to realize that our human experience, what we believe is true and right and good is variable. It depends on our experience and it depends on our experience of life. Mm. So my grandparents were all immigrants. They fled from, um, uh, oppression and war in Europe. Um, and they came to America and my grandparents had a very hard time. My parents' generation uh, became academics. And then I'm a product of those, just those two recent generations. Mm. My experience of America is very different than the experience of a black male teenager who grew up in intergenerational poverty in North Philly, who is surrounded by um, drugs and you know, not that he necessarily is involved in that, but on his, in his neighborhood, they'll see guns, he'll see drugs, he'll see addiction, he'll see mental illness, he'll see systemic oppression, he'll see joblessness, and he mm-hmm. will have a very different view of the world. So the philosophies and ideas that have helped me personally make sense of the world and evolve may not be the most useful lens for my young friend Mm. whose experience of the world is very different. Right. It may not meet him where he needs. It may not make sense of the world that he's from. Mm. And it took me a lot to realize that because in... When you read philosophers, you know, whether you love the Greeks and Plato and Socrates or whether you love um, the Sufis or whether you love the transcendentalists or, or, you know, whoever, the pragmatists, whoever your heroes are, yeah. you have to recognize that they came out of a cultural climate. Yeah. We had great philosophers like Whitehead and Théo de Chardin writing out of the First World War and the tremendous devastation they saw. Mm. Yeah. Um, and we have the pragmatists coming out of the civil war in America where they saw entrenched beliefs pit brother against brother in the most brutal and bloody war that mm. the world had seen. So yeah. it's very, you can't disembed philosophy from the times and the lens and the philosophers that gave rise to it. Mm. And it doesn't mean that we can't take different views and find them valuable. Right. But um, we do have to do our own interpretation and recognition. Otherwise, we are going to inherit biases and slants Mm. in those perspectives that were useful at the time, but may not be appropriate to our world circumstance. Mm. Yeah, that's a difficulty we uh, that I, I've noticed. That's a that's really interesting and really profound. And uh, I feel like it it can be difficult to study philosophy uh, through uh, some of the resources that are out there because there is a there are there are camps and there is dismissal of of, of certain ideas or certain you know like um, like someone who has a, a religious faith. Uh, for example, and and you want to dismiss the other things that they say because because of that, but you know you kind of yeah I I, I like that 
because sometimes it, sometimes it is difficult. You meet the apostles of these various um, philosophers and you get kind of, you, you, you feel like it's all or nothing. And so I, I like, I love what yeah. you're saying. It's kind of, um, I, I've noticed that when I'm interested in a new philosopher, I'll, I'll get, I'll watch a biography of them or I'll try and try and find something that, that tells about their life because it does help kind of put them in context. Right. And, and um, yeah, I wonder if there's any merit. I mean, uh, another thought that I've had that you're, you're bringing up actually and applying to, I've applied it to philosophers, but you can also apply it to just anyone is that um, the perspective they've gained from the experiences that they've had uh, and from whatever their, whatever their self is, whatever personality they bring to the equation, um, you, um, that the, the fallacies that they might come up with are, are actually a product of, of the same, the same experience that brought the, the positives or that brought the, the insights, the insights that resonate with you. They come from the same place. It's not that a person is divided into, you know, well, that person believes in God, so they're irrational. And so, you know, uh, and, and so that it's like that side of their um, philosophy came from a bad place. This part came from a good place. And it's kind of a, it's kind of a reminder, like what you're saying reminds me to kind of not have that, not have that distinct divide. Um, because, you know, if you've got someone who's seeking universal love in the 1800s, you know, what is God but universal love? And so in that, and I'm not, I don't mean to hone in on the God belief, but I know I've noticed that that is kind of sometimes a dividing line in the way that people look at various philosophers and mm-hmm. rather than looking for the salience or the, that like looking for that personal resonance with what they're saying and then, right. and then doing a translation of, of the other parts that, for yourself so that you can kind of ring out the wisdom or something. Yeah. Um, so, or, or be conscious of some limitations that may be deeply embedded. Right. Um, you know, yes. and, and one of the things that I've seen is that as I've gotten into some of the philosophers, I found particularly um, a, a lot of, um, how to say this, there's a lot of um, bias towards the masculine mm. in a lot of philosophies and a lot of disregard of women in the circles that women have been traditionally a part of. Mm. And it's gotten woven in. In, 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 in. in the Western culture now, we have a scientific bias where we bias anything that can be measured over those things that cannot be measured. Right. Now, my father, um, may his memory be a blessing, he passed a year ago. Mm. He was a particle physicist. Oh, wow. And he worked you know, with very, very minute particles. So he would speed up electrons and blow them into neutrons and and break them apart and look for mesons and pi mesons and quarks and and muons and all kinds of far out things so what i learned from being around him because i was always more my brother was a scientist and my sister an artist and i was more um a thinker and i liked ideas and thoughts and writing and I really felt like he took a lot of things on faith. Mm. You know, they did these complicated mathematical equations, but really, you know, how many of you have ever seen a muon? Nobody. They're too small. And, you know, you can see that a lot of great physics, you know, theories of physics got overturned. You know, you have the theory of relativity, which overturned Newtonian physics. So, Science is also a matter of faith. It's, you know, we, we observe what we can observe, but mm. what we can observe is limited by what we believe is possible. 
mm. and what we're looking for. Yeah. So there isn't a very hard division between philosophy and science and art that we're always influencing the what we're letting into our field. Even if our field mm. is very vast, we're still, you know, our human mind will will create boundaries and whether mm. they're for particle physics or whether they're for philosophy or whether they're for religion or whether they're for psychology or another discipline we're creating those contexts and then we're defining reality and truth within that well that's mm. the best we can do yeah we're all doing it right it's not particle physics has a certain um hold on what's true in certain realms and contemplative practice does too, because you start to experience the interrelationship between mm. the physical energy that animates our body, our consciousness, our awareness, our insight, our capacity to love. Mm. There's a science to the mind as well. Mm. Um, and that's been honed for thousands of years in different traditions in a different way. So I guess my point is, is that we are all doing this. It's not bad that we're interpreting reality to the best of our ability, but we are all doing it in all mm -hmm. of our dis different disciplines. And we want to recognize that and yeah. be humble about that. I love how you're opening it up. You're opening up this, um, I don't know, it's almost like a, a joy of, of a joy of reality and a, um, a pragmatic definition of faith even uh, like it's not a religious faith, but your father had a faith uh, structure. Not only did he have a faith, it's a really interesting way to think about, about faith because um, he had faith that these things were happening based on the results of the test. But then he also had, I'm sure beautiful images um, that only lived in his mind of the effects of, his experiments. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know, again, not a, not a question, but just riffing off of what I'm hearing. Um, it feels to me like um, whatever we choose to do in life that um, um, kind of really activates us and gives us that sense of wholeness, um, maybe does involve a certain kind of um, faith or at least a mental picture of what's beyond um, the veil of our understanding. Mm -hmm. And that there's, there's like, a, there's a benefit and a joy in um, coming to a place where what's beyond the veil of our understanding and what we can put into words is something that actually calls to us rather than something that menaces us or, or something like that, where like, whether it be these actual particles that are beyond the veil of, of our physical vision, or whether it be um, the, the innate creativity and love of human beings, that if you can, if you can get to a place where you can feel that calling you from beyond the veil rather than hearing menacing voices. This is such a, a up in the air language, um, but it's just what's going on. Um, that the, the world that you're living in, that you can express, that you can see, changes character dramatically. Like you, you, mm -hmm. it changes the space that you can see this, this faith in what's, or yeah, this, this call to what's beyond understanding and beyond the veil. Does that, is this uh, making yeah. sense? Yeah, it's making sense. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I, I really, I really enjoy uh, the way that, the way that you're, um, you're thinking and characterizing these things. Um, I, I really, um, I really appreciate um, the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think um, this, the inner strength that you are, you're, you're passing to people, especially in the context of, of recognizing it's, it's personal and it's not formulaic 
and it's not based on a, on a system of rigid beliefs, I think is, is just crucial right now. It's, um, it's, it's why I reached out to you and, and wanted to speak to you. So um, how can people, how can people get involved? Like where all is, like what you're doing, is it, is it based mostly in Philadelphia? Is there ways that people can get involved outside of Philadelphia or anything like that? Yeah, so people can find out about the work on innerstrengthfoundation.net. Um, I'll put and, a link to it. Yeah, great. So, and everything is there. I do a monthly uh, podcast webinar for um, about different issues and in the classroom, but that apply to teens, and that really are the philosophical underpinnings of the program guided meditations there's you know some free meditations listed teen resources yeah. we're in the process of building a mobile app which will be free and accessible for teens mm. and it will also have a main its main feature will allow communication between teens and um oh. support and and feeding out um oh, so it's not well, a replacement yeah. for some of the meditation apps that are there it's really uh a, a mindfulness and meditation uh, tool for teens to use and work with. So that will be right. up on our site. Um, we're hoping to have the pilot of it in April, um, but there are plenty idea. of resources and, and uh, teacher training. If you want to learn how to bring these tools to teens or you're a parent and you <laughs> want to figure out if there are other things that you can do to help your teens cope with, um, right. the challenges and get the most out of their adolescent years. Amazing. Uh, I'm going to actually write, just in case, uh, I'm going to write down that web website again. Um, what, what was it? Inner, Inner Strength, strength Foundation.net. Foundation.net. And um, from the sounds of it, um, for like what I like about this for teens uh, is that it sounds like you're not um, like they can take the lessons they're learning from this back to whatever um, tradition they're from. Yeah. In other words, it's not, yeah, you're not passing on. I think that's one of the things that does concern some, some parents in that kind of thing is the idea of their kids, even if it helps them, if it, if it removes them from the tradition that they come from entirely, then it's, it's frightening and it probably you know, so am I right in thinking that like, this is something that people can bring back? Um, yes, definitely. Yeah. We're, it's, we're very sensitive. Uh, one of my high schools has students from 20 country, 27 countries speaking 20 different languages. Wow. So I have everything from Syrian refugees who are Orthodox Muslim to, um, to refugees from Myanmar who are also Muslim, to Nepali refugees, to Tibetan refugees, to um, people, children from Ghana and uh, Kenya and Southeast Asia and um, Philadelphia. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I really work with students from just such a variety of backgrounds that we're very sensitive to the cultural context. We use social emotional tools and trauma-informed work. We, we work with contemplative practices in a secular context. And mm -hmm. because I have a deep background and a respect for uh, different philosophical and, and religious traditions, I am aware of that religions do see things differently and I am aware of boundaries. So mm. when I teach my instructors, we're able to be more sensitive because we have a deeper background. I have 40 mm. years of experience with meditation tools. Wow. I didn't start this yesterday. I started in 1978 as a high school student and I never wow. stopped. And that was my uh, entire adult life, um, teaching and learning and studying and writing um, for philosophical magazines and interviewing people. So I really, it, it helps to have a background to know mm -hmm. how to respect people's traditions and how to really truly bring secular tools into the secular public school. You, you yeah. do need to know where the tools came from so you can be appropriate. Yeah, that's great. And that's one of the things that really 
made me want to speak to you and, and appreciate uh, what I can see online of the work that you do. So, um, I mean, on, on, this has been a, a huge honor um, for me and, and just appreciate you generously giving your time to speak to me today. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Is there anything else you'd like to say about, uh, about your work or how to, get in, how to get involved, how to get in touch? InnerStrengthFoundation.net. I have a book called The Conscious Classroom, mm -hmm. which is available on Amazon. Uh, it won an uh, IPI Award for Excellence in Educational Theory. So if you're looking for the philosophy, classroom stories, it's not a how-to. It really gives you an understanding of what's involved in giving, giving, making classrooms more conscious and giving both teachers and students us an inner stability in order mm. to create outer stability in their life. So mm. I'd encourage everyone, people enjoy the book. It's, it's readable. And it's is it fun. aimed at teachers or is it aimed at, at adults, just, just, just adults, adults. Of, of, at all? And as a parent that really, uh, I, I, I would like to read that myself. So, yeah. um, wonderful. Well, Amy Edelstein, um, thank you again for coming on my podcast. It's been a real pleasure. Um, and, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not great at ending these things, but, uh, it, it, thank you for having me. Pleasure you're welcome. Thank you very much. Um, and have a great rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you.